As far as the question goes, uh, I don't think that the death of Rabbi Joseph Eichnerson in 1950 was expected. He was still, you know, a relatively uh, young person. He was only 70 years old. But when it did happen, I'm not really sure that the movement uh, was ready for it. First of all, Lubavitch was a very small movement in the United States at that time. Uh, I I doubt there were even 50 Lubavitcher Hasidim living uh, in Crown Heights. And um, there were some who had left uh, Soviet Union and the DP camps in Germany or some of them in France were, who had left the Soviet Union. And there were some Lubavitcher Hasidim in Israel. That's a Parsha in itself because the Jerusalem Lubavitcher Hasidim were not really uh, part of the mainline movement. Um, and there were Lubavitcher Hasidim scattered across the United States of, uh, you know, of a much weaker type than what we think about today. But um, I don't think anyone really expected his death. Uh, and when he died, um, I think people were didn't know what to do. Um, and there were obviously three candidates for succession. One was the oldest son-in-law, Rabbi Shmario Gari, known as the Rashag, who seemed to be the obvious candidate for uh, succession because he had been at his father-in-law's side uh, since he got married, what year was that? 1922 or something. I had, except for one occasion, he had rarely left his father-in-law's side. The other candidate was uh, Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, who, since his arrival in the United States in 42, had worked for the Central Lubavitch Organization, Merkos Lunyone Kinuch. And the third candidate, although people now uh, in the revisionist Lubavitcher history, discount him completely, is the only grandchild of the sixth Lubavitcher, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Shalom Bear Gerari. Uh, and he was the only blood relative of the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe. <clears throat> uh, those were the three candidates. And I don't know originally if any one of them at the get-go had uh, unanimous support. It doesn't seem that they did. Um, and I'm not really sure whether there was the supporters of each candidate were were could be divided in an easy classification system. I think there were older American Hasidim who supported Gerari, and there were others who supported uh, Rami Nachum Schneerson, who then was known as the Ramash. Uh, and there and then there were uh, others Americans, uh, people who had traveled to Atvatsk or people went to Torvadas. Uh, who, again, were divided between Gerari and um, the Rebbe. I'm, I'm not really sure who... What, what were the were specific the... families on Rashag's side? Uh, I, I real, first of all, I, I really don't want to get into involved into naming names. Secondly okay. of all, it's difficult. It's, it's, even if I were, it's difficult to answer that question because no one today, and that goes back to the mid-1950s, no one was willing to admit that they were supporters of the loser. I mean, Gerari was the loser, so you couldn't find any Lubavitcher who would say that uh, his father or himself were backing Gerari. Everyone, uh, the, you talk to people, everyone said they were backing uh, Rabbi Menachem Schneerson. Now, if, if, that, if it was really that unanimous, 
there wouldn't have been a struggle that seemed to last between six months to a year. And it clearly wasn't that unanimous. There are clearly people on both sides. And and I, I imagine, although I don't have much uh, uh, documentation for this, there are probably people who uh, uh, may have even supported uh, Garari, Barry Garari. But uh, it seems to be that the major struggles between uh, uh, Rabbi Shmaryo Garari and the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who became eventually Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Nachman Shmierson. Now, there were a few uh, issues involved. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, I think the Rabbi Nachman Shmierson was, he had a definite advantage in the fact that he was a blood relative of the first three Lubavitcher Rebbe's. He was a Schneer, so he was a descendant of the first three Lubavitcher Rebbe's. On the other hand, Gurari uh, was not part of the Schneerson family only by marriage. Uh, that was one issue. Another issue, I think, which I think people may not have uh, been conscious of, but I think was played an important role, was that uh, Rabbi Nachman Schneerson was, was much more acclimatized to uh, the American scene. Uh, although he had arrived to, in America also only a year, year and a half after his brother-in-law, but uh, he seemed to be more part of the American scene, more part of what was real, what was the religion of America. The religion of America was pragmatism. It, was, uh, it wasn't theoretics, uh, it was pragmatism. And the uh, Rabbi Nachman was in a certain sense, a pragmatist. He, he was a utilitarian. He wanted to get things done. I don't think he was that interested in theory. And, and that's the way I think he came across. Even uh, um, Barry Garari told me that even in um, France and in Germany, when he was studying engineering, he was a problem solver. As far as engineering goes, he saw engineering not as a theoretical study, but as solving problems. How do you fix a refrigerator? How do you fix a machine? That was his chief thing. And I think <clears throat> he took that part of it, that part of his uh, <clears throat> mental capacity over in terms of his religious duties as a rabbi. And I think he saw you know, um, his chief duty as a pragmatic person. Garari, on the other hand, uh, you know, I'm not gonna say he wasn't a pragmatist, but I don't think he was really that much in touch with America. He was a, a keen student of Hasidus, of the theory of Hasidus. Of course, he was also the director of the Lubavitcher Yeshiva and the chief fundraiser, so you can't discount his ability um, to administer and to be a fundraiser. But um, I think he was much more European than, uh, than Rabbi Nachum Schneerson. Rabbi Nachum Schneerson was, you know, you can't say that he was American because he had just arrived in America nine years earlier. But, uh, you know, he was more American than his brother-in-law. So I think both the, the family connection and the um, the Americanization of, or the, of both of these candidates played an important role. Also, I, I've been told that um, Rashad, Rabbi Gurari Sr., uh, made a fair number of enemies in the Lubavitcher uh, community then because he actually did run the central Lubavitcher Shiva and he was in charge of hiring and firing faculty or in many instances of not hiring faculty. Uh, and that annoyed certain people that they weren't hired or they were fired or they were transferred or whatever. And um, so he made himself some enemies that way, whereas uh, Rabbi Nachman Schneerson's job 
was sitting in a back room in uh, Yuram de Lubavitch Educational uh, Publishing Network, Merkos Manyanifino, and uh, there were very few enemies to be made sitting and um, editing books and uh, writing uh, writing materials. Let, let me say something as a reflection and some feedback that I got uh, to the previous podcast. And number one is uh, people say, oh, qualifications of uh, Barry Gurari that he went to Torah Vadas. Ha, 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 LOL, okay? So uh, undoubtedly Ramash is a person who had the charisma, had the looks, had the yichos, had the knowledge and everything in one package. So ultimately the question is, that's often asks about the spouse. I mean, do you really want this woman who is so smart? You don't need her. You need, you need somebody who is very simple. You need somebody who knows how to cook. You need somebody who knows how to clean the kitchen, etc. And ironically, you know, the reality is that uh, many people in Chabad sort of transferred their romantic feeling onto the Rebbe. And ironically, those people who transferred their romantic feeling to the Rebbe are exactly the same people, if you talk to them, that they would tell you that it's not really important to have a spouse who is special. And I think uh, sometimes a reason for it is that they sort of took whatever romantic capacity they had and they transferred it to Rebbe and it sort of evaporated from the rest of their life, especially from the area of relationship where it counts. So, but why, why do I sort of go into this description? Because ultimately, uh, the question is, was Ramash good for the Jews? Or as Bibi said in the Gutnik campaign of 1999, Bibi Tovle so the question is, if Ramash Tovle Yehudim, and obviously the answer to that question for many Chabadniks is absolutely, you know, what we'll do without the Rebbe. For me, the answer to this question is not as obvious. Just like you, when you deal with the spouse, uh, for you personally, or for the Jewish people in this case, was it, uh, if, if the Rebbe was a tragic event or the event that actually elevated us? I have my own opinions about the subject, but I would only notice that it's not as straightforward. The other well, aspect, uh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I would just say, I think there in, certainly in the last 20 or 30 years, or as women in the United States have, um, or world over have gotten their independent careers, in uh, various fields, medicine, whatever, um, I think your analogy uh, holds water because I think many people, uh, you know, and I, I say this in general, you know, many people, many men have married uh, very successful women. And you can say about them that these women have been contributed tremendously to um their fields, be it law, medicine, uh, academia, whatever. But on the other hand, it doesn't necessarily mean that when the husband came home, he found a meal there 
or that the kids weren't in daycare or that uh, the house was run down. And uh, I'm sure this was a problem in many, many areas. I would say the same thing about uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, that um, with all due respect, he contributed tremendously to the state of world jewelry. Uh, but that's a subject for a different discussion that I, you know, I don't want to make a blanket statement. So he did contribute to world jewelry, undoubtedly. But I, seeing this present state of the Lubavitch movement, and, you know, I'm not impressed by, um, by profit sheets that Lubavitch will show me that they opened up so many and so many Chabad houses. I'm impressed. We're talking about religion. We're not talking about selling used cars. So in talking about religion, what impresses me is quality, not quantity. Lubavitch has adopted the engineering uh, background of the Lubavitcher Rebbe to its own definition of success, which is exactly how many pairs of film were put on by how many Jews. Now, that's not a measure of success. That's a measure of success only in terms of quantity, which is good for if, if I'm selling um, nails or if I'm selling cars. But if you're talking about religion, religion is measured by quality. And in quality, I think the success of this movement, um, certainly after 1994, uh, begs a lot. Well, the other aspect of it, and also I am uh, reflecting in the feedback that I got for the previous podcast, and that is it occurred to me that many people, maybe due to their character, and maybe it's sort of a feature of a religious feeling and thinking, is they tend to divide uh, people to bad and good and with very little space in the middle. And it's almost, uh, it's almost religious thinking compels you to push people in one of those camps. It's either very bad camp or very good camp. And there's, there's void in between. And people have difficulty transferring, pe transferring people from either camp into the middle category. I might say this middle category doesn't even exist. So by definition, in this confrontation or in this argument, whatever Rebbe does is good, whatever Barry Garadi, he's the enemy, it's bad. It, there's no any room to allow any kind of a middle ground for either of those characters. And I think if, mm -hmm. go ahead. No, I, I, you know, I think what you're saying is true because I, again, I think it's related to what, what I was saying before, uh, that uh, Lubavitch measures things in terms of publicity, in terms of money, fundraising, and in terms of numbers. Everything is in numbers. They'll always tell you that we have, uh, let's just say, 3,000 shluchim. But, uh, you know, no one has ever done a study of exactly what these people do. And I challenge any Lubavitcher listening to this to name me one city in the United States where since a Lubavitcher shliach has been active, where the intermarriage rate has gone down. I challenge them to name me one city in the United States 
where since they've been active there, where all or 50% of Jewish-owned stores are closed on Shabbos. I challenge them to name me any place where they've been active, where more yeshivas and and Orthodox synagogues have been open since they've been active. There are no such cities in the United States. As a matter of fact, in most places and in many cities where they've been active for 70 years, the intermarriage rate has shot up while they were active. And the number of Orthodox synagogues has gone down. Now, I'm honest enough, unlike my critics, to admit that there are other factors at work, too, besides Lubavitch. But since Lubavitch claims to have all the answers, they're like the shell answer man on the commercials for gasoline. They have all the answers, except they don't, they don't understand one thing, that in order to have all the answers, you have to admit one thing that you don't know. That's the biggest admission, that you don't know the answer. But they know all the answers. And if they know all the answers, how come in most of the places they've been active, intermarriage has gone up? And Orthodox Judaism is going down. Jewish stores are still opened on Shabbos. Mikvahs have been closed, except for the ones they built for their own wives and, and relatives. So, you know, this, everything is just measured by numbers. They will tell you we have 3,000 shluchim. But what, what do the 3,000 shluchim do? What have they accomplished? You know, well, this is the, the key. And no, no one has done a, a survey. No one has actually done taking a city as a sample, take it, let's say it's, uh, I don't know what city to take, and examine the state of Judaism in that city since the Shliach arrived. And, you know, I posit that they would find that nothing has changed. Nothing. They've had no effect. Some people have become religious, and some have not, but they've had very little effect on the state well, they, of Judaism. Their own families uh, overwhelmingly uh, made money out of that extraction. And but the other aspect is, you know, if you change the angle, it's not, it's not going to see what the state of Jewish affairs in a particular town, but somebody should go and meet fifty shluchim, and create sort of a survey. How do they make money? How do they live? Uh, you know, what what do they own? And and then there would be statistical well, think... statistical picture beyond dispute. Right, but I think it's also fair to say that if you let's take a city where Lubavitch has been very active, and uh, I'm having trouble right now thinking of such a city um, uh, where they've been active for, let's say, 40 years, and see, as, while they've been active in a school or Chabad house, have the number of Orthodox synagogues gone up? Have the number of women using the mikveh gone up? No, have but the you, number but you, of listen, but you, you're falling in the same trap which you just uh, described. No, but that's as, a way you know, of you, know, look, you say, on the one hand, you can't you can't measure it by numbers that you sort of I, said not. the Lubavitcher Rebbe himself. But then I, I'm measuring it by the state of Judaism, by the state of Judaism. But right now we have Marvin Schick, Oliver Shalom, who was a, a very keen doctor. Marvin Schick was a keen professor at the graduate school of uh, City University of New York, was keen observer of Lubavitch. And many years ago in the Jewish press, he asked exactly the same questions that I'm asking. Let's try to find, see what exactly does the Chabad Shaliyah do and how effective has he been? You know, they're not the only business in town. 
as my father would say, in Moscow, there's more than one male living in Moscow. There are other outreach organizations, too. Why should the Jewish community in America put all its money into Lubavitch outreach organization? There, there are others, uh, you know, NCSY, there, there's Eisha Torah, there, there are even others, you know. So we just don't know. We have no idea. And I hear what your criticism of what I just said is. It makes some sense. Yes, I agree with your criticism. But we just don't know what they've accomplished. There's never been there's never been any sort of survey. I don't know if survey is even the right word uh, of of what Lubavitch has accomplished. Have you know? They're always just throwing numbers at you. Three thousand shluchim, twenty five thousand new. Uh, New Chabad houses, 50,000 peers of tefillin were, were put on, 70,000 uh, women lit camp. What does it mean? I mean, what does it mean for the future? I don't know what it means. I have no idea what it means. It sounds nice on paper. And, and if I were selling used cars, it would be fantastic. I'd be a rich man. But we're not selling used cars. We're in the business of religion. And, and, and I'll add one thing about Barry Garari, since what you mentioned uh, I mentioned that he went to Torah Vadas and got smicha from Rabbi Kushalevitz, I believe, only in the context of vicious criticism from present-day Chabad Hasidim who have labeled Gurari as a non-entity and as a um, vicious person. Rabbi, you know, I mentioned that because, hey, Rabbi Gurari was a rabbi. He got a smicha. He went to Torah Vadas and he didn't go to United Lubavitch Yeshiva because his grandfather actually wanted him to learn something. And his grandfather knew that the yeshiva he started was a brand new yeshiva, which may have had its own foibles. And he wanted his grandson to learn with serious people. By the way, Rabbi Gurari also spent time as a auditor in Rabbi Soloveitchik's, yes, Rabbi Joseph Beer Soloveitchik, yes, the Rav of Boston, yes, Rabbi Gurari spent time learning with him, believe it or not, uh, friends out there in Crown Heights. Um, so Rabbi Gurari wasn't exactly what they, to use the Gemara's language, a katlakanya. He wasn't exactly a zero. Um, that's my point, that he wasn't exactly this zero. Now, you know, if you want to go back to the way Lubavitch measures things, which is strictly by public relations, well, I can say that Rabbi Gurari's resume says Smicha Yeshiva Torah Vadas, United States, in the Sister Rabbinical Seminary in America, uh, MA, Columbia University, um, ABD, which is all but dissertation uh, in physics, from, I believe it's Johns Hopkins or Columbia. Now let's compare that to the resume of Rabbi Menachem Schneerson. Smicha, unknown. Uh, supposedly from uh, Rabbi Weinberg in Berlin, uh, supposedly from the Rogachover, supposedly from, you name the rabbi, supposedly, we've never seen his smicha. Now, before you guys get excited out there, I'm not doubting that the Lubavitcher Rebbe was a first-rate Talmudist. I'm not doubting that. Now, next, as far as degrees go, you can say he had 75 degrees from 
University of Berlin, from Marburg, from uh, Zurich, wherever. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that he had an engineering degree, a practical engineering degree from a college, a university in Paris, not the Sorbonne. So if you compare the two resumes, which you guys, you know, your PR machines like to do, the resume of Garari looks better than the resume of Oldavichareva. You know, now I, as an objective human being, know that Oldavichareva was a much bigger Talmudic scholar than Garari. But you know what? That doesn't mean that if Garari in 1950 uh, assumed a rabbinical position, that over the course of the next 10 years, uh, he too could have could have uh, become a first-rate rabbinical scholar because hey, guys out there, I know you're all astrophysicists in Crown Heights. I know you tell your, all your Balchuvas, you know everything about the latest in physics and chemistry and everything. But if you really knew something about physics, you people would know that anyone who studies physics and is good at it, like Garari, can master Gomorrah too. So I leave it at that. So um, again, to comment on some of the things I heard as a feedback from the previous podcast. An analogy I'd like to bring is analogy of current war in Russia. And the question, <laughs> and the question that I ask myself is, wait a second, is 80% of Russians, they support Putin and Russian propaganda. How could they be so stupid? How could they not understand that this is just a murder and it's not good for anybody? Why, how 80% of people could fall so low as to support this aggression. And the answer I, uh, I give to this is that it has nothing to do with logic or rationale. It mostly has to do with the signaling of obedience to power and signaling of uh, being part of the particular tribe or group or nation. In other words, when people who are asked that question profess their allegiance to Putin, they're not expressing any particular take on the war or on violence or anything else. They're just signaling obedience to power. And incidentally, you can see examples of that also in the United States. You know, when somebody puts the BLM sign in their front yard, it's no declaration of particular view. It's mostly a signal of obedience to dominant power at the dominant view in this country. So um, similarly, some of the views uh, that I'm hearing vis-a-vis -vis this conflict, they're not sort of particular analytics of different powers involved. It's just signaling of obedience or allegiance to a certain dominant power in this argument. If you know what if you know what I'm what I mean, and incidentally, I just finish this. You know, I see a lot of um, Ukrainian flags around, and as as you know, I support Ukraine in this war. Maybe that's how we're different. In, but besides the point, the point is that people who display those Ukrainian flags, it's also a signal of obedience to power and to dominant view. It's not particular declaration of who is right and who is wrong in this conflict. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, I agree with what you said. I mean, uh, there's no question that most Americans are sheep. Yeah, I don't want to sound like an elitist, but uh, most Americans are sheep. If the current fad is uh, BL Black Lives Matter, then uh, most Americans will support Black Lives Matter. If the current fad is to uh, knock Trump and the media is knocking Trump, then people will sit and knock Trump, even though sometimes these same people will go into the voting booth and vote for Trump. But uh, that's not the important thing. They're going to knock Trump publicly. It's the same thing with Black Lives Matter. I bet that uh, a good percentage of people who have Black Lives Matter signs are racists, in fact went in their private lives because, you know, in public, everyone says what they suspect the media or the opinion makers in America want them to say. Well, what I want to say is declaration of unconditional allegiance to Ramash in this argument. I think it's, uh, it's sort of at times even cruel, cruel to understanding of what the situation was, the beating of the rabbits and, and also specifically uh, sort of disregard with the people speak uh, some of the uh, somebody like let's say Chaim Lieberman I mean it's like uh, the man who dedicated mm -hmm. literally his whole life to rayats so how can you say on one hand to say uh, that Nosi uh, on the other hand say that his his wife is is nothing no. is garbage his his librarian is garbage yeah, his grandson yeah. is garbage. His his tzvo yeah. is garbage. There's some inconsistency there. Let's let's take a look. You know the the country that Lubavitch grew up under in the 20th century um, was a country called the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union, the leadership in the Soviet Union. You know more about this than I do, so correct me if I'm wrong. But they played take no prisoners, and no more Mr. Nice Guy. Uh, now, before people out there get angry at me, I'm not comparing anyone to anyone. I'm not comparing Lubavitch to uh, the rulers of the Soviet Union. I'm just comparing a certain style, a certain government style. And in the Soviet Union, the style of government was take no prisoners. You know, um, it didn't matter that your opponent was uh, Mr. X, but Mr. X's family also became your opponent. Uh, Mr. X's books, which may have been poetry having nothing to do with government, became forbidden. Now, let's examine what happened in 1950. Um, we got a little bit off the subject, but um, let's try getting back on the rails. Um, it seemed after a half year or a year that uh, uh, Rabbi Menachem Schneerson seemed to um, win, win the battle of who would be the next Lubavitcher Rebbe. Um, Gurari, and I think we should spend some time discussing it. I don't think we're going to have time in today's um, episode. Uh, Gurari lost, and he just couldn't get the support together. And fine. Deals were made. One of the deals was that Rabbi Gurari would retain control of the United Lubavitch Yeshiva, at that time located at Bedford and Dean, and the senior division was, was in 770. Um, but again, the government style of Rabbi Schneerson 
was take no prisoners. Very quickly, the Lubavitcher Rebbe established his own school system called Ole Torah to undo this agreement. So, the Rosh- in fact, the Rebbe said, the Rebbe said he kept to the um, letter of the agreement. Yeah, the Rashad kept control of the United Lubavitcher Yeshiva. But if you were a real Lubavitcher Hasid, you sent your children to all a Torah, which the Rebbe controlled. So once again, the, the, he, so, you know, the Rashad thought he had come out with a little bit of a victory, but no, the Rebbe showed to him who was boss. Then again, you know, the Rashad, Lubavitch, you go all over the world, you go into any community, um, at least the Hasidic community, or or people who we call high mishiyidin, hey mishiyidin, they have shalashudish Saturday afternoon between Mincha and Meirev. Lubavitch does not. Uh, and, you know, people ask questions, why? Why doesn't Lubavitch uh, have shalashudish? Just like the, the Rosh Shiva Rabbi Kahana from Israel asked the Lubavitch Rebbe that the B'nai Torah in Israel want to know why Lubavitch doesn't sleep in the sukkah. And the Rebbe got all angry and, and worked over uh, over that and kept on calling Kahana back and 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 sort of uh, screaming at him. I don't I mean certainly screaming, but I don't know if to add him. Um, so the the question still remains: Why doesn't Lubavitch have shalashudas? It doesn't have shalashudas for a simple reason, because Rabbi Gurari ran shalashudas while the, his father-in-law was alive. Rabbi Gurari was in charge of shalashudas. So the Rebbe, once again, was a smart guy, a problem solver. Hey, how can I, you know, I had agreement. I don't want to share power with anyone. So he just did away with Shalashudas. So Shalashudas in 770 was something that a few old men uh, of Gurari's uh, uh, group attended. And Lubavitch throughout the United States, you know, sometimes they will have some sort of... uh, who knows, truncated shalashudas, but usually they won't have shalashudas at all. Why? Because Gurari was connected with shalashudas, and the Rebbe's role was Shabbos Mevorkin for Brengans, that his father-in-law signed him. So Shabbos Mevorkin for Brengans continue. But, uh, and it's the same thing with what you're saying. Reb Chaim um, was, you know, the Rayatz's um, librarian, personal secretary, but he was a big supporter of the Gorari, so he had to go, and he went. Um, the same is true with Barry. Barry supported his, fa- his father, and the Rebbe uh, allegedly was naive enough to think that Barry would support him, but, you know, the Rebbe was not a naive person. He was a, a very shrewd man, and I don't, I, I don't believe, I don't believe for a minute he thought that Barry was going to support him over his father. So Barry had to go, and uh, and everyone had to go in a certain sense because it was take no prisoners. It was it was a new regime. It was the the Mascara, Simpson and others who were working under um, under the the Rayats had to go, and backroom people, backroom people like Rabbi Chodakov and Mendel, who were backroom people. They weren't they weren't the front room uh, administrators under under the Rayats. They were brought into prominence. So. I think it's just the governance style that um, was picked up in in the Soviet Union that, um, you know, your enemy just wasn't, um, you know, Trotsky. Your enemy was all of Trotsky's uh, family, Trotsky's um, 
you know, writings, anything that had to do with Trotsky was your enemy. And, and I think that, that became the governance style. And again, I don't want people to take my words out of context. I'm not comparing the Lubavitcher Rebbe to uh, the people who ran the Soviet Union. Their style of governance, though, has some similarities. I, I have to say, though, uh, I don't know if it's exclusively um, a Soviet or Russian thing. I think traditionally, even in corporate America, sometimes when the new power is coming into, into force, there is a complete change of management. You're, you're right, but I'm not, you're, you're correct, but I'm not sure in the United States that the company's history books would be cleared uh, like of General Motors that they wouldn't write who the previous uh, uh, chief executive officer was. And if you take a look in, you know, in the Lubavitch Book of Days, that was, uh, forgot what it's called in Hebrew, here it is, um, Yemei Chabad, there's absolutely no mention in it of Chaim Lieberman. There's no mention in it of Barry Garari. There's no mention in it of Rebetzin Hana Garari. Because as, I don't know who said this, either you're with us or you're against us. This is clear Lubavitch policy today. You're either with us or you're against us. If you're not ready to support Lubavitch by lip service and by cutting a nice check, you're against us. Again, I don't know if it's a Soviet Union. Uh, it's a feature of uh, traditional cultures in, in many ways. Yeah, I, in many ways, yeah, the I, history, even even the history that Rayats wrote is sort of like, uh, you know, a little updated, how should I say? It may be true, but I can tell you that in the waspy world of the United States, when administrations change, uh, both uh, in government or in academia or in business world, um, the lady of the house, the, the wife of the chairman of the board or the past chairman of the board or the wife, the first lady of the United States, is not considered an enemy. I mean, Mr. Trump did not consider Mrs. Obama an enemy. Um, Biden did not consider Mrs. Trump an enemy. Trump was an enemy. Trump was considered a bad guy, but Mrs. Trump was not considered a okay, bad but person. Let me ask you: What was was the animosity from the get-go, or there was animosity that developed uh, when well, this whole, think, the whole book, you know, the the whole book well, affair? The book, case, the book case is was a made-up story. It it was a contri it was a contrived because even. No, there's no just, well, there may be a justification for Garari taking the books. There may be because after all, there is, as mentioned last week, there is, there was a handwritten will by Revitzen, uh, Nechomedina, Schneerson, uh, dividing the materials. But l let's say, let's say Barry should not have taken the books. Let's, for argument's sake, but, and he took the books. And, but everyone knows that what Barry wanted was money. He did not want the books. So, it's clear that um, the Rebbe could have called in any of hundreds of Lubavitcher multimillionaires. I won't mention their names, but yeah, as Rebbe, yeah, as Rebbe Shvei all of a sudden said in the Sicha 
uh, a few few years before he passed away, that door in Nine Dalit Amis in D blocks in Crown Heights, Zainan Dua Tsansik or the Dry Sheik Millionaires. And forget about Lubavitchers in Canada and in other areas or millionaires. And the Rebbe could have called up 10 or 20 of them and asked each for $50,000. By the way, David Chase from Hartford, Connecticut would have given the Rebbe a half million dollars right off the bat to, to and settle this without the bad publicity, without family struggles, without putting his own Rebbeson on the stand and the video's extent of how uncomfortable she was in both in her appearance and her fidgetiness and in her answers, how tentative her answers were, but and how putting Mrs. Gurari and and splitting the Gurari physically, and it all headed up to Mrs. Gurari being beaten by Atomim on Shabbos in 770. And I hate to say this, but I will. The Rebbe never apologized. The Rebbe, the Rebbe never apologized. It happened in his Daladamas where he was the Mora de Asra. Mora de Asra, literally, if anyone ever studied Gomorrah, what Mora de Asra means? It means the Mora de Asra of the place. And of that place, the Rebbe was Mora de Asra. Did he apologize to the Gararis for Mrs. Gorari losing an eye? The answer is no. But then again, I have to say this. The Rebbe never, he always held himself higher than halacha. Halacha mandates people visit sick people. People go to funerals. People go to uh, Menachem Oval, other Jews. There are three things right there. There are three things that the Rebbe seemed not to believe in. You know, funerals, hardly ever attended a funeral. Supposedly, he peeked through the Venetian blinds. Nichum uh, Avelim? Who knows? Supposedly he went to the Bubba Varebe, he went to the Satmar, but not regularly. Um, I don't know. I mean, he seemed to feel that the Nazi Nazi of the generation is free of doing many of the mitzvahs that ordinary Jews have to do. Ordinary Jews have to visit the sick. Ordinary Jews have to um, comfort the mourners. Ordinary Jews have to go to funerals. You know, these are big mitzvahs. These are, big, I mean, we say it every morning in the davening. But the Rebbe did seem to feel that they're important. I mean, on the other hand, a, a man living probably a few miles from the Rebbe, the Satmar Rebbe, who had more chassidim than the Rebbe, by the way. Satmar is probably twice as big as Lubavitch. The Satmar Rebbe went to funerals. The Satmar Rebbe went to um um, you know, he visited sick people, sick Hasidim in his community. He he did all of this stuff because it's incumbent on, it doesn't matter if you're, uh, you know, uh, or an Evian or an Amoret, or if you're the biggest rabbi in the world. But uh, the Nazi of, of of our generation, the Sido Reinu, is free of these mitzvahs. That's clear. But the Sido Reinu doesn't have to do this stuff. I don't know. That's a that doesn't bother me. What, what does bother me is that you know, beating of Hana and and I, I published in the old mental blog, I published a picture of, which is like too graphic even to look at. How could, somebody, so, how, how could somebody go up and beat a 90-year-old woman? And there was a well, settlement. Yeah. There was a settlement about this, correct? There was. There was. Let, let's just make this clear. I'm not saying that the Lubavitcher Rebbe is responsible for beating Mrs. Gorari. I'm not saying that, but his rhetoric 
his rhetoric was certainly a, um, you know, trigger. it's certainly, pardon? It was a trigger. Yeah, a trigger or an influence. It was a factor in it, his rhetoric on Shabbos. Uh, uh, I don't, did I ever hear the Fabrengan? I mean, I think it's recorded. I think people, I mean, by the way, people recorded Fabrengans routinely on Shabbos and Yontas in, in Crown Heights. I'm not saying that the official Lubavitch uh, sanctioned it, uh, but everyone knew it was being recorded. Um, all I'm just saying is that he never apologized. That's that's where my uh, my my problem is, that, you know, you would think at least, you know, he's he's the Mardasra Asra there. It's his it's his uh, bailiwick. And uh, he never apologized. He never said, you know, I'm so sorry that to the Gorari family that uh, that what this happened and uh, we're going to bring this guy to justice. Instead, this guy was hustled off on Shabbos to an airport in New York and hustled off to Israel. And uh, he's never faced consequences for his act. Never. Um, so, you know, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that the Rebbe caused this, but he, did, he didn't, he didn't, uh, he wasn't responsible for this thing, but, uh, you know, it didn't seem to, it didn't seem to perturb anyone in Lubavitch. I mean, uh, no one in Lubavitch seemed to got, get all worked up over the daughter, the, the oldest daughter of Rabbi Joseph Eisenerson losing her eye on Shabbos. And they came up with all sorts of excuses that she did it to herself, that she fell, that she had an accident, that, that uh, 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 you know, a uh, uh, pigeon came and did it to her. You know, every sort of excuse under the sun, except for the what really happened. What, what really happened is that a, a bocher in Lubavitch got excited by what the Rebbe was saying and decided to take the law in his own hands. That's what happened. And uh, no one wants to talk about it. No one, you know, I'm not saying it needs to be publicized, but if you publicize that some Lubavitcher is running the marathon or some Lubavitcher won uh, a beauty contest uh, and it was made Miss Purim, uh, then you should publicize this too. Oh boy, how I hate speaking about it. I can't even imagine. I, I find myself in very similar feelings to you. Um, but a lot of these things, I think, need to be uh, aired. They need to be aired, even though I think um, we've veered off a little from what um, uh, we were planning to talk about, which is more, um, uh, in my opinion, is the struggle in 1950 over leadership. Um, but, you know, it, it, it really is all one thing. It's uh, the struggle over leadership uh, was not exactly seamless. Uh, it, too, involved um, uh, a certain amount of terror. It involved a certain amount of, um, uh, I don't know, the use of uh, in intimidation. Um, I don't know. And, 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 and it certainly didn't, didn't show, the loser didn't show goodwill. Um, the, the, the loser showed goodwill, but the winner didn't show any goodwill. That's what I meant. Um, Gerari was not given anything. You know, the Rebbe Fabracht for 42 years, he had Fabrengans constantly. Uh, and many of these Fabrengans occurred either on Yudbe's Thomas or on Yudshvat, the York side of his father-in-law, or the day his father-in-law was released from the Soviet prison uh, or Soviet, uh, uh, I don't know if it was prison, or whatever it was, jail. Um, 
the Rebbe never passed the microphone, slid the microphone down the table and said, Schwager, uh, Hart, Schwager, um, Sercha, um, say a few words. You were there. You were there when the, when the Schwer was arrested. Say a few words. Well, what are your mem- memoirs of it? Or at the yard site, uh, uh, uh Sercha, my Schwager, Zoga el Lechaverte. What happened then about the Schwer? Never. There's he a famous pa- there's a famous passage in Likuti Deburim where uh, Rayatz is before he's being escorted into prison and is is looking at the at the, at the Sholomber Gorari little child and he gives them a very lengthy brocha and he actually because it's in Likuti Deburim he himself uh, obviously wrote from memory what what was this brocha. And even, you know, Chabadniks, they managed to expunge even this. Well, you know, historical revisionism is something that all, um, all, all sorts of people are guilty of, and Lubavitch is too. I mean, Lubavitch is, uh, you know, guilty of historical... People, like I mentioned before, Rav Chaim, Rav Chaim Lieberman, uh, Rebetzin, um, what's her name, Rebetzin Chana Gurari, Barry Gurari, the only grandchild of, uh, of the Rayats, they've all been expunged from Chabad history and from pictures. By the way, they've been cut out of pictures. Their pictures uh, where Rav Chaim's been cut out, their pictures when uh, when Barry's been photoshopped, there are even pictures of of Rabbi Gurari sitting on one side of the Rayats and the other side, uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe of the Rayats, and the picture has conveniently been cut has to not to show Rabbi Gurari in the picture because uh, actually Rabbi Gurari sat as father-in-law's right because he was the oldest son-in-law. But, you know, so um, I don't understand why in 40, 42 years of Habrengans, the Rebbe never could give Gurari a word. He couldn't let, okay, he never let, let him have a word. Zoganavort. Only when uh, the Rashag was in very bad shape, and I think this is a David Chase uh, had donated some money for for expansion of 770. Did the Rebbe out and wasn't for bringing either pass the microphone to the Rashak to say a few words. Um, and the Rashak must have been uh, 88 years old when this happened. Uh, but for years, the Rish, so the Rebbe was was the Rebbe never the Rebbe never forgot. He had a tremendous memory. You can see that from his uh, Fabrengans where he. He seemed to know Kola Torah Kulo, as they say. Um, and he never forgot uh, people who dissed him, shall we say. You know, and uh, Barry dissed him big time. And he never forgave him. And um, the Rashag dissed him uh, some, somewhat. And he made sure the Rashag would, in fact, keep control of the United Lubavitch Yeshivas. But the Rebbe set up a competing uh, school system to, you know, and the same thing is true with Charles Shudas. And you know what? I don't claim I know much about Lubavitch. I bet, guarantee you that there are insiders who can probably name another 10 examples of what I'm talking about. Yeah, but, um, but as, as you say, you know, ultimately, uh, it's Rashag weakness that he should have stood up and, and opened his own issue. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The, the, when the Tzemach Tzedek died, uh, I don't know how many of my uh, listeners, if there are any out there who are Lubavitch or Hasidim, Maybe, you know, maybe they're smart. They have better things to do every Shabbos. Um, uh, but, you know, when Tzemach Tzedek died, uh, there was more than one successor. Uh, the Marash succeeded in Lubavitch, but uh, 
Rabbi Yehuda Leib, the Mariel, became Rabbi Kopus. And as a matter of fact, most Chabad Hasidim became Kopus Hasidim, not Lubavitchers. And there was also Rabbi Nezhin, one of the sons, another son became the Rabbi Ladi, uh, another son became a non-Chabad Rabbi in Avrach in Ukraine. Um, so, you know, the Rashag, obviously, Rabbi Gorari Sr., obviously was a, a mild, meek person. I didn't know him. Because in 1951, he he really should have slammed the door and just moved to uh, Borough Park or um, or Flatbush or wherever and set up shop as uh, another Lubavitcher Rebbe. So there'd be two Lubavitcher Rebbe. So, yeah, like so. you know, we have them. They're like 12 Vishnitzer Rebbe's now. Exactly. They're like... Uh, they're like 16 Spinker Rebbe's. You know, they tell a famous joke about the Spinker. Uh, you know, I don't mean this in any way to diss the Spinker Hasidim, uh, but they tell a joke that there was a wedding. Don't, don't worry there, was a gen- there, was a, there was a wedding uh, involving the Spinker uh, Hasidim. So the Spinker Hasidim arrived at the wedding in a Volkswagen, and the Rebbeim arrived in three school buses. <laughs> they're, they're more spinker uh, rebellion. There must be like at least uh, 16. There, there must be six Leleva Rebbes. There must be who knows how many Nadvorner Rebbes. Um, there are at least two official Satma Rebbes. There's a you know, Satma Rebbe's son-in-law in Muncie is basically a Rebbe as well. Um, there are two official Baba Rebbes, but there are probably at least one more in, in Borough Park, uh, uh, on 16th Avenue, who's a nephew of the previous brother of the uh, Rev Shlema, who's a brother of Rebbe. And, you know, there are all sorts of, uh, you know, so well, the, the, th- Rebbe the, th- the thousand shluchim who are basically channeling the same business. Well, they're all the Rebbe's children. We know that. So, um, um, so I mean, Rabbi Gurari would have would have had support. The I, I suspect the Kramer family was with Rabbi Gurari. They had the money. And um, I suspect Rabbi Garari would have uh, had uh, some support, uh, enough certainly to be. But I guess he was a very, um, uh, I'm not criticizing him, but I suspect he was a man of peace and probably a man who, more than any other person, was probably very dedicated to Chabad more than he was dedicated to himself. Uh, you know, if he was dedicated to himself he, and he had a big ego, he would have wanted to become Lubavitcher Rebbe, even if it was being Lubavitcher Rebbe in, uh, in, uh, in the Bronx. Uh, but he wanted Lubavitch United. He wanted to keep his hand on the steering wheel of United Lubavitcher Yeshivas. So, and he, uh, I guess, reluctantly, however reluctantly, uh, agreed to accept his brother-in-law. But his brother-in-law, in all fairness, didn't seem to be a... Uh, uh, you know, didn't seem to uh, forgive Gurari for even trying to be Rebbe because, as I said, I'm not going to repeat it, uh, you know, he set up a competing school system to the Rashad. Um Nor did he ever allow the Rashad to say a word, as I said before. You know, the Rashad never said a word. Why? After all, he was the son-in-law of... of, not, of, not, of on, not only that he didn't say a word, but when the Barry Gurari uh, affair sort of unfolded, and his, I mean, his wife was beaten, lost an eye. His son is being compared to uh, Yasser Arafat. And at the same time, he has to sit there and listen to all those bombs going on and all the rest of the baloney. 
Well, that's the way, um, you know, you... you I mean, it's, uh, you it's obviously... like if on the human level, it's, it's, it's sort of embarrassing. Of course, of course, Chabadsky, they, they're so happy about it because in their eye, it shows this kashrus, it shows bitul, but it's on the human level, it's not, it's incomprehensible, it's disgusting. It's like, I don't even know how to describe it. And you're saying that you're saying that Kashag was old and wasn't into it, but well, and, and it's just when the, well, I agree with what you just said, but I'm just saying that the reason in 1980s and late 80s why the Rashag didn't lead is he was a very sick man. He had suffered strokes. He he had trouble eating. He had trouble breathing. Um, there's no way he was going to get up and leave anywhere certainly not to Montclair, New Jersey. Uh, he needed a minion. And, and after 60 years of dedicated leadership and dedicated commitment and work to Chabad, he wasn't going to get up now on the verge of uh, eternity and, and leave Chabad. That's not his legacy, and that's not what he wanted for his legacy. So he remained with it. But on the other hand, I will challenge any Lubavitcher to show me any piece of written evidence where Gerari, old me and Gerari, I don't mean old me negatively, but the, as compared to uh, Barry, Ravi Gerari Sr., um, where Ravi Gerari came out and publicly said that the books belong to Agudah Sassidi Chabad, and if he did, it was under coercion by uh, several of his um, relatives, uh, am among whom was one who has a great distinction the distinction being the um, the uh, the white collar criminal in New York State who embezzled the most money. Um, I'm not going to name the gentleman, the Pnei Kavodo of the family. Um, so um, that gentleman was the person who coerced the will, the so-called will of Rabbi Samarius Gurari. Um, and that gentleman raided the Gurari's apartment. Uh, while uh, the Rashad was sick and Mrs. Gar was in Montclair. And among the interesting things that he took from the apartment uh, were, of course, pictures and this, but also Mrs. Gorari's dresses. So I wonder why he needed the shoes and the dresses and the um, and other clothing from Mrs. Gorari. What was his point about that? Who knows? I mean, you know. Um, how, how do you know about so, that? Because I know, I mean, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, the Gerari apartment was raided. You know, it was raided, you know, uh, you know, allegedly in a legal manner, because allegedly um, Ravi Samaris Gerari left everything to Lubavitch. You know, but that was a coerced will. Um, <clears throat> one one could only, one, one doesn't have to be a genius to... You know, someone like myself who attended many, many Fabrengans of Lubavitch, many, you know, who knows how many, uh, to see the Rashag with his head um, on his hand, half asleep, the way he looked at his brother-in-law, his lack of attention at the Fabrengans, his body language gave away what he felt, just which is basically uh, ambivalence. He certainly never showed excitement at these Fabrengans. Never. I mean, why? He, you know, I certainly never saw him getting excited when when the the, uh, the crowds were dancing and screaming and this. He was just sitting there with his 
uh, hand, with his head propped on his hand, and the city, and uh, probably dreaming of what life was like in uh, in uh, Rostov or in uh, Leningrad. <laughs> uh, under his father-in-law, and he was there uh, as a young chutzen, um, you know, how great it was. But certainly we never saw this excitement, uh, like the Lubavitchers now are trying to convince us that, that the Rashad was a big chutzen of the Rebbe. Oh, yeah, it was a big chutzen of the Rebbe. You know, uh, um, how, how could you believe that when the Rashad and his wife were married for, what, uh, over 60 years, and here comes along a human being uh, maybe he wasn't human. Maybe he was the Messiah, who, uh, uh, who's certain of the things he said resulted in them being physically separated. And Lubavitch has the chutzpah to say that they uh, that they separated as man and wife. That that is a chutzpah because it's not true. The Rashag and his wife met weekly in Williamsburg in. Um, territory that wasn't friendly to Lubavitch. So the Rashag was taken there and Mrs. Gari was taken from Montclair and they met there weekly, which is, I guess, the best they could do because the Rashag was needed a minion and the Rashag was not going to abandon his legacy of commitment for, of, of united Lubavitch issues. She was Tom Ketimin Lubavitch. So, um, big mistake. Pardon? Big mistake. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe. Family first. I, well, maybe you're right. You know, I, you know I, 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 that this this whole is kashrus and bitul is. Uh, l- let me uh, tell you a little anecdote from a current events in Russia in the war. Is it about Spinka or? <laughs> no, no, it's not about Spinka. There was a famous marshal. His name is Suvorov, and there is uh, efforts in Russia to declare him a saint. Now. It's unusual that you will declare a saint a marshal. It's even more unusual what people are talking about, that he was actually, he was very cruel because he occupied Belarus, he occupied Pol- Poland, he was a serf slash slave owner. He was just an incredibly cruel person. And in spirit of our times, of course, Russia wants to elevate exactly military man like this to the status of saint. But what do you know? Once I heard a miser from Yoel Khan. Yoel Khan told me that he heard from Ben Shemtov, that Ben Shemtov once said that when Suvorov, when Marshal Suvorov needed to go over a ditch, they built him a bridge consisting of human soldiers, meaning the soldiers just would lay down in a pile so the General Suvorov can walk over them. And when did this marshal? When did this marshal live? In what century? It was the uh, 18th century. Okay. So uh, the 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 example that Ben Chishemtov wanted to illustrate is bitul, meaning the, the Hasidim should be bottled to the Rebbe and have his kashras to the Rebbe, like the soldiers that sort of form a pile of human flesh to. Uh, general go over with. So, I mean, it, you, you would expect something like, first of all, you would expect something like this from Ben Chishemtev, which is sort of like a Soviet image of what really connection to the Rebbe is. I would call it maybe communist, maybe even fascists. But 
you know, whatever, you know, maybe I'll, I'll cut some slack to Ben Shishemtov because after all, he's, he's my landsman. But nevertheless, there was this feeling that goes culturally back to Mother Russia of sort of complete subjugation as an ideal. And in some this way... Is this is something that the Russian Hasidim seem to have. Like today, um, you know, all, all Rebbe's dream of this sort of uh, situation in their in their court. But the only group I really know that has it today is like Skver. And even though most of the Skver Hasidim today are Hungarians, but the Rebbe and his family are Russians. And they, they practice uh, a type of court that you're describing. You, you know more about square than I do. No, we, we, never we, mind. It was a joke, but it's okay. Yeah. No. I mean, uh, you know, we we um, you know d d with this fellow, uh, what's his name, Din, wrote a book about his experiences in New Square. And you know, I'm not here to attack Square because Square is not interested in influencing American Jews, and Square does not have a PR machine. And Square is not interested in making American Jews into Square Hasidim. So whatever they do is their own business in my book. I mean, as long as it doesn't result in violence and, uh, you know, uh, negative publicity to the Jewish community. Uh, but Lubavitch is different. Lubavitch is out there um, fundraising among all sorts of Jews, trying to convince all sorts of Jews that um, they have the truth and the only truth. And, you know, as I uh, mentioned uh, not last week, but in private conversation, that um, Lubavitch is not interested in Jews being Orthodox Jews, because if they were, they would limit their missionarizing um, to secular or non-Orthodox Jews. Um, but Lubavitch has a vast apparatus of, of uh, missionaries and literature, uh, certainly a lot of literature, um, aimed at the yeshiva world aimed at other Hasidim, namely in America, people in Williamsburg, Satmar. Um, they have a lot of um, people, a number of people, Hungarian Hasidim have become Lubavitchers, and they do not inform anyone that they've become Lubavitchers. They are sent back to their native communities as agents, as uh, underground subversive agents and that's what caused the uh, the affair with uh, Rabbi Wechter, because Yol Khan, Oliver Shalom, uh, was in Williamsburg teaching Hasidus, not openly, but in a underground manner. And Wechter was running a yeshiva for special, not not special in the way it's used now, but for special in the real, in the in original meaning for really gifted students. And uh, Wechter was not telling anyone that he was teaching Chabad Hasidus to these people. Um, and it caused a tremendous anger among the families of these uh, people. And um, it caused, um, you know, I'm, I'm not justifying what the end results of this were. I mean, uh, I, as a matter of fact, you know, uh, I would condemn it. You know, once again, I, I, I don't think it, it was the right reaction. It wasn't a very emotional uh, reaction, but it wasn't the right reaction. Um, 
But Lubavitch is interested, Lubavitch believes in its propaganda, it states, that it is the most, believes in Avitz Israel, the love of all Jews. But in fact, it is the Orthodox group least believing in love of all Jews. It is not accepting of any other religious outlook, be it the Musser movement, be it the Yeshiva movement, being modern orthodoxy, be it Satmar, being Ger, Bells, Braslov, go down the line. They believe all these people in order, if could I use the word on, on this podcast, in order to be saved, they have to accept Chabad and not only accept Chabad, but accept the Lubavitcher Rebbe as well, Mashiach. You know, Shalom Aleichem. With all due respect, I don't think ideology plays any role anymore. It's all purely business. Well, I, I do think what I'm saying is exactly the truth, though, because let's just examine a recent event. In a recent event, uh, a number of YU students were taken to spend a weekend in uh, Crown Heights. In recent years, some of the OLA Torah students invade the base Medrash in YU Thursday nights by 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 the hundreds or certainly by the dozens, Lubavitch will will do all of this stuff. But will they allow 150 YU students to come to Crown Heights and teach the teachings of Rabbi Soloveitchik to Lubavitch students? Will they allow Braslaver Hasidim to come to Ole Torah or to their Chovave Torah based Medrash and teach? Lakute Moharan, will they allow Ger Hasidim to come there and teach um, the Ger Hasidim, Kedusha Rim, No. No. If you're a Brasler and you come into 770, you probably ha- will get your, your uh, you get poured over by the famous Lubavitcher water quartz. They'll th- and they'll kick you out. But they want to go everywhere. They want to go to Lakewood and teach their Hasidus. They want to go to, and it's not teaching Chabad Hasidus because people don't understand this, that all Hasidic groups recognize the Tanya as being a primary work of Hasidic thought. And as a matter of fact, even Misnagdim do. Misnagdim recognize it, that, that it's a primary book of, of Jewish mystical, and not only mystical, because it's, it's not really that mystical. It's mystical, but it's also, uh, it's, Chabad is called Chachman Bin Adas for some reason, because it is Chachman Bin Adas. It's an intellectual it's for Lithuanian Jews. Nowadays, no one even knows that Chabad was Lithuanian. Chabad was a Lithuanian Hasidus. It wasn't a Hasidus for, for, for Poland or Galicia. It was a Lithuanian, the Alta Rebbe was called Reb Zalman Litvak. But now no one even knows it because no one knows Chabad history anymore. No, Chabad history started in 1902 in Nikolaev, when a certain gentleman was born and an aura of light lit up all of the Ukraine. It was just unbelievable what happened. The skies were a light with the sun never went down. Mashiach had arrived. And that's when Chabad history started. It didn't start with the Alta Rebbe, Mittal Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek, the Marash, the, the other brothers. That, that's garnished. You know, even as we go on in time, 
The Friedrich Rebbe becomes less and less important. The Friedrich Rebbe's importance is only not that the last Rebbe was the son-in-law of the Friedrich Rebbe. No, the Friedrich Rebbe was the father-in-law of the of the last Rebbe. That's his importance. That the Friedrich Rebbe was the father-in-law. Oh, by the way, you know, Rabbi Joseph Schneider's son. Oh, he was he was he was the Mashiach's father-in-law. Great, you know. So this is a movement that's a one-way street. We want everyone to join us to recognize, not the Tanya. This is all uh, this is all obfuscation. Everyone accepts the Tanya. Everyone, but they don't accept the other works. That's a different story. No Lubavitcher has ever studied uh, any other work of Radomsker Hasidus, of Koshnitzer Hasidus. They've never opened it up. But the truth is that you know you take a look at the 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 the, the Hasidus and even the big Hasidic Rebbe of our time. They bring down the Tanya constantly because the Tanya is a primary work of Hasidus. But that's not what Lubavitchers are spreading. They're not spreading the Tanya. Spreading the good news that Rabbi Menachem Schneerson is here, and that he his kashras to him will save you. Hallelujah. <laughs> okay. On that note, I wish everybody a good Shabbos. A good Shabbos, everyone. Uh, to be continued. Enjoy Shabbos. Be a peaceful Shabbos, a restful Shabbos. Uh, of course, I'm going to and, publish um, this on Sunday, but that's a different story. No, it doesn't matter. And, uh, you know, um, I, I do believe there are a lot of... there. The, I just will add one last thing, that just as what I just said about the one-way street in terms of... Um, Chabad trying to influence everyone to accept its Rebbe. There's a one-way street in terms of um, propaganda also. You know, it's just propaganda coming out of uh, 770 and 100 uh, different agencies that they run. And um, they're not open to listen to other people. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll give you talking points about Rabbi Soloveitchik, but Rabbi Soloveitchik's only importance in Lubavitch is that he went to see the Rebbe. That's oh, his yeah. only importance. Absolutely, yes. If, if, if he didn't go to see the Rebbe, he has no importance. I remember Kad Havina Talia, to use the Gemara's language, when I was a kid. Kad Havina Talia. I remember when the Lubavitcher teachers told me, oh, the Rabbi Salvechik spoke for six hours, and he did in those days speak for hours at his father's yurtzeit shiurim. And the Rebbe, the Rebbe heard what he said, and with a snap of the fingers, the Rebbe broke his, all the arguments that Rabbi Soloveitchik <laughs> made. All the proof. And with a snap of the finger, the Rebbe broke. They, and what was Rabbi Soloveitchik called to most of And what do many of them still call Rabbi Soloveitchik? J.B. Uh-huh. Joseph Beer. J.B. They call him J.B. They don't call him the Rav. They don't call him Rabbi Soloveitchik. They don't call him Rabbi Yosha Beer. They don't call him at least the Briskarov's Plemenic. No. So it's like me calling, hey, what did, the, I don't even want to mention the name. I don't want to mention what, it's like me calling the Rebbe by his first name. And I don't do such things, so I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I I have, although, you know, I've spent the last hour and a half, I, I still have respect for Lubavitcher Rebbe as a human being. I have respect for him as a Talmudic scholar, as what what they call in the Loshan Gemara Chavir. You know, he's, uh, he's a million times, he's, yeah, I'm nothing. 
but he is a Haber, not in the language of a friend, but a Haber, a language, a part of the Talmudic uh, co-fraternity. He's part of it. So one has to have respect for this person. And I do have respect for him. I disagree with a lot of what he did and a lot of what, what his Hasidim have done after he's gone. But, you know, I have respect for him. But they had no respect for Ari Salvatric. They called him by JB. They, 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 you know, the Rebbe knocked off his arguments in 35 seconds. So they're only, it, it is as if I once, you know, I, I once was talking to a Lubavitcher Hasid about various Godol Yisrael. And their, their only frame of reference to every Godol I mentioned was that the, oh, the Rebbe mentioned him in the Sikha once. The Rebbe, he came to visit the Rebbe once. It is as if, you know, um, the, 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 I'm trying to think of an example. The Minchas Elozer of Munkach had no standing in himself. His only standing was that the Rebbe mentioned him in the Lakuta Sikhas. That's his only standing. The same thing with the Rogachover, that the Rogachover was a Veltzkon and the Hasidic Rav of Dvinsk is meaningless. His only standing was that according to Lubavitch uh, legend, the Rebbe talked to him or, or you know, uh, or, or that maybe the Rebbe brings him down in his, uh, in his Marmakins. And they can go down the whole list. Oh, oh the, the Rambam. The Rebbe mentions the Rambam. You know, wait a second. You know, the Rambam. The Rambam is, is a million times a more, much more choshev than the Lubavitch Rebbe. And who's going to argue with me on that? But, but for Lubavitch, the Rambam's godless is that the Rebbe made him a mensch. The Rebbe made him a mensch because the Rebbe told everyone that you should study Rambam. But wait, what, what sort of nonsense is this? You know, what, what's, I mean, uh, it, it's just, and that's what annoys me with Salvation, with Ray Salvation. It's annoying. I mean, Ray Salvation was a godl. And when I talk to Barry Gurari, if I may mention Barry Gurari, if I may mention him, he told me, and this is almost a paraphrase of a quote, that grandfather loved experts in any field. He loved expert artists. He loved expert academicians. He loved people who he considered expert government leaders. And he regarded, this is Rabbi Joseph I. Schneerson, regarded Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik as the expert, the mumcha, with the Hey Hayadiya, the expert in Talmud in his generation. That's not Joseph Eisenhowerson. Rabbi Joseph Eisenhowerson did not hold of Rabbi Soloveitchik because Rabbi Soloveitchik showed up at the Lubavitcher dinner and praised him. He didn't hold of Rabbi Soloveitchik because Rabbi Soloveitchik encouraged the Lubavitcher yeshiva in Boston. He held of Rabbi Soloveitchik because Rabbi Soloveitchik was the Godol Hador. And for Lubavitch, anyone standing in the world is only related to has the Lubavitcher Rebbe saw that person and the covered he gave to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Rav Henkin, the Tzaddik of Ezra's Teira, his big thing in Lubavitch is that he turned on the radio Saturday nights and listened to Rabbi Weinberg teaching Tanya. That's that's the godless of Rabbi Hankin. Not the godless that the man was a tzaddik, that the man was a pose kador with, together with Rabbi Meisha in the United States in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and even 60s. Not that he ran Ezra's Teira and paid himself a salary of, of five kopikas a year. Not All that is not, not important to who Rabbi Hankin was. Rabbi Hankin's godless is that he turned on the radio Saturday night and listened to Ray Weinberg teach Tanya. 
This is a movement that's weird. Listen, it's a movement listen, that. Reb Shalom Aleichem. You know, those are small people. What can you ask from them? They're just in love, you know? They're completely in love. But <laughs> there, was, there, there, was an, there was another person who actually created this type of culture and knew fully well what was going on and how and why and, 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 and you know, that's the question here. You understand? Don't blame, don't blame the Hasidim. Hasidim just, uh, you know what? they're simple I, people, I'm... they're doing their best and they're, and they're head over heels in love. I'm not blaming anyone. Many Lubavitcher Hasidim are the nicest people around. Many, many of them, uh, you know, I don't want to say this because I'm going to, I'm going to sound like the guy who says my, some of my best friends yes. are black. I don't, I'm not going to say that, but I do have friends in Lubavitch. I have nothing against individual Lubavitcher Hasid, nothing, zero. Um, and I'm not going to go into why, because I suspect that if I did, I would be a self-hater too. So I don't hate myself and I don't hate, uh, uh, you know, I'm not going to say anything else because I'm not interested in revealing what I am or who I am. But so I don't hate Lubavitcher Chassidim. I, you know, I can even honestly say that I don't hate uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I mean, I think, uh, you know, his his example of caring for um outlying Jewish communities uh, world over uh, was an important thing, you know, but he wasn't the only one. I mean, he wasn't the only one. And uh, let's let's just take an example. In Romania, the chief rabbi, Rabbi Rosen, he, he was a little bit of a controversial figure, but Rabbi Rosen was a catalyst in having something like 250,000 Jews in Romania from 1958 to 1964 coming to Israel and not the United States and not Peru and not Bolivia, but coming to Israel. Rabbi Rosen kept the shuls open in Romania. Rabbi Rosen, Rabbi Rosen in 1964, there were over 100,000 Jews in Romania. And besides Rabbi Rosen, there were three or four other rabbis and a half dozen, a dozen or so shochtim. Everyone else left. While the ship was still sinking, all the rabbis left Romania. Rabbi Rosen stayed. He stayed and kept the shuls open, kept Ashkita going, kept Talmud Torahs open. So the Lubavitchers claim credit for it. They claim credit that the Rebbe encouraged Rabbi Rosen to do it. Uh, anyone who's read Rosen, and I have, I've read about him, I've read his sermons, his knows that Ray Rosen was not a weak personality. He stood up to Ceausescu. He stood up to Jewish communists in the 1950s um, who, who easily, Anna Pauker, uh, you know, who was Jewish, her father was Shechet. He stood up to these people and he easily could have ended up in some uh, jail with Ceausescu, uh, sent him to some jail, but he, he stood up to, he, you know, there's no question Lubavitcher Rebbe encouraged him, but Lubavitcher Rebbe encouraged many things. But to say that the Lubavitcher Rebbe was the catalyst for this is, is nothing short of nonsense. Rabbi Rosen was a powerful personality who, you know, was vilified by many in world Jewry, accused of being a tool of communism, accused of being a communist. Yet after, you know, like the Gemara says that you're only Omed al-Dato of your Rebbe, you only understand your Rebbe, what is it, after 40 years? I'm so excited, I don't remember anything anymore. Um, but you only, so after, after the Rabbi Rosen died, 
in La Havdale after Ceausescu was shot, did people begin to understand what Rosen did here? He got 250,000 plus another 100,000 Jews to Israel, not to the United States, not to, not to Great Britain. And the largest community, I think, of Jew, ethnic community of Jews in Israel until like 20 years ago when intermarriages and everything in Israel, I mean intermarriages among Jewish communities, was Romanian Jews. Romanian and Moroccan Jews were the two largest communities. Um, so, but Lubavitchers are ready to take credit for everything. They're ready to, they're, and, and, you know, you know, so it's a strange thing, you know, in, 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 I'll just say this last thing I'm, I'm sitting and talking, but, uh, in, in South Africa, after, uh, Mandela rose to power, I, I don't know, was indeed, was he ever president or his followers are president? I've lost track of history. Um, but after the blacks, um, rose to power in South Africa, there were truth commissions between the blacks who were formerly rebels and um, the whites who were in control. And these truth commissions had as their primary goal uh, to know what was going on, what crimes were committed by both sides. And the promise was that there would be no indictments and there would be no, um, no punishment un unless these crimes were particularly horrendous. And I can't tell you that I know exactly, you know, whether anyone was punished. But, you know, army officers, white army officers were not killed, uh, even though they admitted to whatever they did to the rebels. And the rebels weren't weren't punished uh, uh, when they admitted what they what their terror, their so-called terror in quotation marks activities. We need a truth commission here in the United States. We need a truth commission with Lubavitch. We need a truth commission. We need to understand what what this movement has done, what they haven't done, why they want everyone to become a Lubavitcher, you know, why the Rebbe has been made higher than all other rabbis in the world. You know, Lubavitchers say that the Rebbe was the biggest uh, rabbi in the uh, in the 20th century. I mean, did they ever hear of the Chazan Yish? Did they ever hear of the Chavetz Chaim? Did they ever hear of Chaim Brisker? Did they ever hear of the Ger Rebbe of Rav Mordechai Alter? Did they ever hear of the Sadmar Rebbe, for that matter? You know, it seems, you know, because their adherents, their, their, their proselytes never heard of these people. So, of course, in their eyes, it's either Stephen Weiss or Lubavitch Rebbe. So, Lubavitch Rebbe is more they, important. They, they're Stephen promoting Weiss. a brand, so-called yeah. so product, which we'll That's speak it. about this later on, like what, what this whole concept of. One of the shluchim told me, you know, I be, he tells me, I believe in product. He said, I, I'm going to give a class in Sichas because I believe in product, he says. He called well, it this a is, product. This is... so giving, giving class in Sichas, he called a product. So well, we'll, this is what we'll, we'll talk about yeah, the product. I just, right. I just will say this, that this is what I was referencing in the beginning of uh, the interview, um, that Lubavitcher would be excellent used car salesmen because they're selling a product, be it used cars, news car, new cars, insurance policies, uh, in the old days, encyclopedias. Um, they're selling a product. And if they can report back to, um, to um, headquarters that they sold, 60,000 cases of vitamins, that's pretty good. That gives everyone a share, uh, you know, of profits and publicity and uh, maybe power. Um, but, you know, I say this again, we are talking about religion. And, you know, I don't mean organized religion. I mean, we are talking about spirituality. Chabad, 
was a spiritual movement, a meditative, contemplative, introspective spiritual movement. Yes, it was based on Taryag Mitzvahs. Yes, it was based on the Tarsh Balpeh and Tarsh Abhiksav, but it was also a spiritual interpretation of all of this. And instead, it's been turned into the sale of vitamins, or as you say, product. All right, on that note, we have a good Shabbos. Sure have a good product. <laughs> a good Shabbos. A good Shabbos. Call to. Bye-bye.